Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. The world in 1944-45 was in terrible shape. Europe was in ghastly shape. In Holland, there was there were shortages of everything. The war was winding down. But in Holland, where food was almost unobtainable, it was known as the hunger winter. We may be facing a new hunger winter. And to talk about that and to tell you why Europe is in such awful shape, we have a very distinguished commentator, journalist, former diplomat, and uh, generally expert on these matters, my friend, Saria. Uh, she has just written a wonderful article in Time magazine, which covers the whole issue of energy and food in a very complete way, in a way which, to my mind, is not being covered sufficiently in the daily media reports in the US. It begins this way. The energy crisis is real and getting worse. Until blackouts begin or pump prices make driving actually unaffordable, most people generally think no more often of energy than of air. For this reason, Americans have mostly been sheltered from the energy crisis unfolding urgently and in some cases lethally in countries around the world. In many other places, especially Europe, the escalating situation is impossible to ignore and it's going to get a lot worse. Saria, welcome to the broadcast. Tell us what is going on. Llewellyn, thank you so much for inviting me, especially so that we can talk about what is such an urgent and important issue that affects the entire world, even if most Americans have thus far been insulated from it. And that is the quite literally cataclysmic energy crisis that the world is facing. A confluence of a number of factors have come together to mean that many countries in the world, especially Europe, but certainly not exclusively Europe, are facing astronomical energy prices, so high that utilities are having to shut down, that blackouts are being experienced, that inflation has reached double digits in most countries in Europe. The UK is looking at a forecast of 18% inflation by the end of the year. A lot of this has to do with energy prices. And so it's important that, that people be aware of what's unfolding and the causes and what can be done about it. And nearly all of it is the result of the war in Ukraine. And of course, you were based in Ukraine uh, as an energy expert with the Department of State. You know this very well. We are suffering because of the Putin invasion of Ukraine and because Russia provides at least 40% of the energy to Europe and to some countries as much as 70%. Tell us which countries are going to hurt the worst and is it the pain spread equally across Western Europe or is it confined uh, to some in particular and Germany comes to mind? Llewellyn, the question of which countries are going to be most affected by the looming winter crisis, and indeed which countries are currently most effective by the crisis that has already begun, is based on some history. And so I think it's worth our going backwards a little bit so that we can understand how it is that Europe came to be so desperately dependent on Russian energy and thus Russia having so much leverage over Europe. 
And we need to go back to Soviet times when Germany decided to pursue a policy called Ostpolitik, which essentially meant trading with Russia in order to use trade as soft power to influence Russia in a positive direction. Of course, then it was the Soviet Union, but I will use Russia imprecisely. And to some degree that worked, absolutely. Uh, one could credit part of the fall of the Soviet Union to Ostpolitik. What, what Germany and other European countries got out of it was extremely cheap energy. And can I interrupt a moment? What astounds me is here's Europe spending a lot of money on NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to defend itself primarily against Russia, while essentially uh, becoming dependent on the Russian bear and putting its head in the bear's mouth. I think uh, it's it, the head. I think Europe has put most of its upper body into the mouth of the great and hungry bear, and it's suffering for it. It's paying the consequences. What does Russia hope to get out of all this uh, when finally there is some resolution in Ukraine? Russia will have been enormously hurt. Europe, of course, will be set back decades probably, and Ukraine will be largely reduced as it is now many areas of it to rubble. What did Russia hope to get? And what did it think would happen with this best customer, Europe, for its uh, for its petroleum products? So it's not, as you said, just natural gas, diesel, which is regarded as a refined product, hauled product, not uh, is very important coming out of Russia for Europe. Um, what did they expect to get and how much hurt did they expect they would have to take? It's important for all of us to, to start by saying that speculating about what Putin is going for is always a game. Uh, it's a tragic game in this case. But best guesses are that Putin was trying to use energy to divide Western alliances, possibly even to weaken to the point of breaking NATO. And in Ukraine, it seems to be the vengeance of a spurned former lover who, if nobody, if he can't have Ukraine, then no one can. The brutality, the destruction, this is not even really an occupying mission. It, it's, a it, it's an effort to destroy. The, people have described it as genocide, and there's certainly growing evidence of that. But there is also the energy question, and some have speculated that Russia was trying to take hold of Ukraine's gas fields. Ukraine has some of the largest natural gas reserves in Europe. It doesn't produce the largest amount as a function of both geology, but also technological, uh, a lack of technological modernity in some cases. And the Ukrainians have been working quite hard to catch up. But in the meantime, Russia has gotten rich, so to speak, on selling energy to Europe. Over the last 10 years, it's made 120 billion on energy exports. As much as 65, 66% of, of its budget has been for the sale of energy. And you as you said, of course, it, this isn't exclusively natural gas. It's also oil, refined petroleum products, it's coal. And so what the West seems to have been calculating and possibly also Putin, 
is that the energy interdependence, Putin reliant on the money from selling energy and the West reliant on the energy itself, was so deep that the West would not retaliate for Putin invading Ukraine, that essentially the West would choose to sacrifice Ukraine because it could not afford to live without Russian energy. Saria, before I diverted you, you were explaining to which were the most vulnerable countries, and you were explaining uh, Germany was probably at the top of that list. Germany is the poster child of being too deep in Russia's energy pocket. And that's because Germany is heavily reliant on Russia for its energy source. 50% of its petroleum, excuse me, 50% of its coal, 33% of its petroleum, 45-ish percent of its natural gas have come from Russia in recent years. And that means if Russia feels like causing pain, trying to influence Germany in, in a different foreign policy direction or a different economic direction, it certainly has the leverage to do so. It's been with mixed results thus far, but Russia has made more money this year on energy exports, even just since the invasion of Ukraine, than it did last year. Its its income is is up, not down, despite the fact that energy imports from Russia into Europe are down. The prices are so high that Russia is making more money on less. And so essentially, Europe is funding through energy purchases from Russia, the aggression in Ukraine. What is going to happen with food in Europe and then in the rest of the world? I'm, you know, keenly interested in Africa, and it looks as though Africa will starve. The energy crisis has sent prices so high, up 600% over last year for natural gas, 10 times higher for overall energy uh, than the average five years. So electricity is expensive. It's 300% more. Buying fuel for your tractors so that you can plow your fields anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world for that matter, is significantly more expensive than it used to be. And now add a grain shortage. You have countries in the Middle East, for example, that were 100% reliant on Russian and Ukrainian grain exports. So when you have Russia stealing Ukrainian grain and blockading the Black Sea so Ukraine can't export anything, then you have a supply shortage. And a number of countries in the world, especially in the Middle East and Africa, simply do not have adequate alternatives, nor the money with which to buy them. And so yes, we're looking at food shortages, possibly even famines. We are looking at the possibility of people not having heating for the winter. People may well die. And that's before you even get to the overall effect on inflation. You add energy and, and food shortages to both to together, and inflation is 12% in Europe. It's high in the US, albeit there have been some positive signs recently, but a huge amount of the inflation here is energy related. And in fact, Axios reported yesterday that one in six American households is now behind on its utility bills because of the inflation, because of the increased cost of energy. And we are in a better place than anywhere else on earth. Tell me, Saria, what do you think the resolution will be in Europe? Do you think that Russia will triumph in Ukraine? Do you think that Russia will tire? Do you think Putin will be overthrown and there'll be a more liberal regime come into place in Moscow? 
What do you think is going to happen? I have short-term pessimism, medium-term realism, and long-term optimism, by which I mean, I think that neither Ukraine nor Russia has the wherewithal for a decisive end to the war. It will continue for a while. It will be gruesome. It will be a frozen conflict. It will keep the rest of the world in a, in a state of economic instability and energy crisis, and probably food crisis as well. In the Do you think that Germany, for example, will cave and give in to Russia and start buying gas, as much gas as Russia, and in return for that, drop the sanctions? I have to hope no, and I don't think it needs to. The problem with caving to Russia is that that teaches Russia that it has gotten away with it and can try again. In fact, one could say that the current invasion of Ukraine is because in 2014, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea, Germany didn't impose any sanctions at all. Merkel considered it and was then talked out of it allegedly, by German industry that wanted to continue getting cheap gas from Russia. So I think we have to have learned the lesson that appeasing Putin doesn't work. That said, this is a difficult question for Europe, of course. The EU imports 55, 60% of its energy, uh, and that leaves it with very few short-term options. What can we in the rest of the world do to help Europe this winter. Uh, there are people who say if we had a, a deal with Iran, you know, we might be able to get more Iranian gas into Europe. Uh, it's unlikely that any agreement with Iran would actually get through the Congress. So that's a, a dubious calculation. Uh, and we are exporting as much as we can of our natural, liquefied natural gas, but there's a limit to the export infrastructure uh, what can we do? Just sit and watch this horror show go on? There are short-term few solutions. There are decent solutions long-term. In the short run, probably the only real solution is belt tightening. It is all of us everywhere learning to consume less energy. We need to reduce our thermostats from 74 to 68 for this winter. We need to turn lights off. We need to not decommission nuclear plants, for example, in Germany that could continue to run for a few years. We need to get biofuels up and running. Biofuels are one of the few fuels that can be made quite quickly, six months approximately, to get a, a few... A, um, explain me. to our viewers and listeners what you mean by biofuels. So biofuels are an alternative fuel that are, that, that are created, depending on which particular one you're talking about, by using trash. You can take trash, for example, you can take agricultural waste, and you can use it to produce gases that can then be turned into fuels. It's, a, it's essentially a form of recycling. You can also do it with, with, with inputs that don't make it recycling. But if you were, for example, going to do it with agricultural waste, it's an excellent way of reusing and repurposing things that might otherwise simply go to waste. But that's only going to be a, a very small assist, and it's hardly going to solve the problem. 
So in the short run, Llewellyn, unfortunately, cutting consumption or belt tightening is the only possible solution. Now, Europe, strictly speaking, has enough energy to survive this winter. It will not be comfortable, but it will be perfectly survivable. Germany's fuel storages, for example, its natural gas storages are, are already at over 70%. They are on track to be full by October. It is costing a huge amount of money because gas prices are at $3,000 per thousand cubic meters of natural gas. And those are expected to go considerably higher. But there is enough if we all learn to conserve. Now Where that... is all this money going? Money from gas not coming from this from Russia. Where is all this money going? Who's making it? Um, I noticed that in the United Kingdom, the government is prepared to bail out electricity consumers very substantially, massive welfare, uh, so you can pay your electric bill. And I'm sure we'll see this elsewhere. But why are prices so high? Why isn't there some kind of control of these prices? If they are not bringing any more gas to market, why are we allowing this huge inflation in, in, in the price of gas? Capitalism. Capitalism coupled with Russia is market dominant, especially in Europe, on the question of energy sources. So the U.S. produces a huge amount of fossil fuels, of course, but there isn't yet adequate infrastructure for the U.S. to move enough, for example, liquefied natural gas to Europe to compensate for the pipeline gas that Russia is no longer supplying. Those infrastructure projects take quite a long time. Building an LNG terminal is not a six-month activity. Building a new pipeline is not a six-month activity. Maybe you would tell us, and people don't understand how extraordinary the pipeline network into Europe is. It comes from North America, it comes from Russia, it comes into various parts of Europe from Russia. And, and uh, how many of these pipelines are there and how many of them could possibly accommodate more gas? That is an oddly difficult question, because in addition to the main pipelines, which of course people have usually heard of, Keystone XL, for example, were it in existence, Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2, the Druzhba pipeline, the Yamal pipeline, the East Med pipeline that is has not yet been constructed. In addition to the named ones, there are thousands of little pipelines that don't necessarily go very far. Sometimes they're just interconnectors between two larger pipelines. So it's actually very difficult to answer the question of how many pipelines there are. But suffice it to say, there is a spider web network of oil and gas pipelines crisscrossing the entire world. They have the ability to run in different directions and they have the ability to run at different volumes. Their capacity is a question of pressure, and so the numbers themselves are often a little fungible. But if you look, for example, at the Ukrainian gas, gas transmission system, in theory, it has the ability to move 180 billion cubic meters per year. Now, that is more or less from Russia through to different European countries, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, et cetera. Since 
March, that particular main gas network, main gas pipeline, the Amal pipeline that is coming from Russia into Europe, that, that one's not through Ukraine, uh, but it's been running in reverse because the gas crisis situation is so extreme that there isn't gas coming from Russia through the main artery into Europe. Rather, gas is moving from European countries east into Poland and into Ukraine. And I think that is an amazing symbol of how upside down the energy world has become because of the Russian invasion. A lot of people, Syria, will see an irony in what we're talking about. We're talking about how we can get more hydrocarbon fuels into Europe at a time when both Europe and the United States is trying to get off hydrocarbon fuels, including gas. So there is a there is a sort of push-pull going on there, and Europe had really hoped very substantially that they could cut the use of gas in the generation of electricity by building a lot of wind and maybe uh, later on going to hydrogen. But in fact, the wind did not show as big a promise as it was hoped. But uh, what are we going to do about this? If on the one hand, we're trying to get stop natural gas, and there are people who don't want to any pipelines built in the US, don't want any export terminals built, and yet we're doing everything we can to produce more gas to go into Europe uh, and from North Africa and from other gas-producing places, and possibly from the Eastern Mediterranean uh, when those gas fields come online. Llewellyn, you called it an irony. I might call it a tragedy as somebody who works in advancing the energy transition, both for the US government and also in a private capacity, it's heartbreaking to see that there are countries turning back to coal, for example, out of fear of not being able to heat their populations this winter. It's a, it's a catastrophe. The only positive side of it is the urgency with which these countries are also pursuing a broader renewable portfolio or nuclear. And part of it has to do with what the relative costs of each of these different types of, of power generation are. In the long run, nuclear has the lowest LCOE, that stands for the levelized cost of energy. So it includes input costs, it includes construction costs, et cetera. It's not simply what you would pay per energy unit. So wind has the lowest, but offshore wind has one of the highest. Coal and natural gas have relative advantages, but in the long run, only nuclear is really scalable. The problem with that is that nuclear takes at a very minimum five years to build and as much as 10. And so there's very little way of speeding up that process. And in the meantime, countries are going back to coal and they're going back to oil if they can get it. They're importing US LNG if they can get it or Qatari LNG if they can get it. And this will have a devastating effect on carbon emissions in the short term. So this is a this is a devil's bargain. Get through the several winters till these other sources uh, materialize or um, freeze, and nobody is going to say to their people for environmental reasons we want you to freeze. Well, there there's a middle ground. There are 
consumption reduction and conservation tactics, strategies as well, but especially tactics that can prevent people from truly suffering this winter, but also don't require a complete re-embrace of coal, for example. Germany has put a couple of measures in place. It now has reduced thermostats. It turns lights off in government buildings. There are ways of doing this that are completely reasonable and really don't change the quality of life very much. And in fact, Ukraine is a very good country to learn from in this respect. Because Ukraine has been a victim of Russian energy aggression so many times, Russia turns the taps off to, to pressure Ukraine fairly regularly. In 2014, for example, it did this. So Ukraine has put into place, starting then, what it's what called a, a winter action plan, which it uses to ration energy to make sure that nobody dies and that it can survive without caving to whatever it is that Russia is going for. And that sometimes involves taking one day a week of school out so that the schools don't have to be heated. It involves consolidating certain public functions into certain buildings. It involves turning down central thermostats to a survivable, but not quite as luxurious level as people are used to. The problem uh, Of course, is there are going to be other things that will happen, such as uh, there will be more homelessness because people can't afford um, to pay their bills. There will be many social deteriorations across Europe and the rest of the world. The rest of the world, when food prices get very high, and Europe, because of food and, of course, energy. In the UK, they're estimating 5,000 pounds higher utility bills just for energy because of the current crisis. That That's about seven, about $7,000. It is. That's a prohibitive amount of money for quite a lot of people. And as mentioned, already here in the States, one in six households is behind on energy bills, on utilities. So this is a real problem, and it's an immediate problem. This isn't something we're waiting to have happen. This is happening now. And if we don't all make the effort to reduce consumption, which will in turn reduce prices, which will reduce inflation, then we're looking at a little bit a train that's out of control on a downward track. And yes, there are people who will find themselves freezing on the streets. There are people who will find themselves without the ability to eat simply because food is too expensive. And in Africa, that will mean famine and maybe millions of people starving to death, which is nobody in Africa, if you talk about a majority of the population, ever gets enough to eat anyway. Um, there is a kind of thinness that you see in Africans that you don't see in the rest of the world. We're all overfed and trying to lose a few pounds. Saria, in 25 years of this program, I've congratulated people in many ways, but I've never said that anybody is awesome at the way the kids say it. I think you're awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. That's our program for today. Happily, I'm in New England. It's a beautiful sunny day. And I'm not cold, and I'm hoping I won't be. And I hope dearly that you and my many friends and relations in Europe are not cold either this winter. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, 
Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we 